Father, thank you that you're among us just now. God, you're amazing. We are honored to be your children. Thank you, God, that you love us. Thank you, you have a great plan for us. You know everyone in this room, Lord God. Thank you, you have good plans for us. I pray just now as we unpack some amazing bits of the Bible, you would literally reveal yourself. You would show yourself to be a great God that you are. God, I pray for anyone today who has never met with you. Meet with them today, Lord. Draw them close to you. And for each one of us, thrill our hearts, build our faith as we gaze on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, let me tell you about a man called, they called Mr. Eternity. This is a man called Arthur Stace, who was born in 1884 in a rough part of Sydney. His parents were alcoholics. His siblings grew up as alcoholics. And that was the, he- that was the direction his life was very much heading in. Uh, he ended up being arrested and in prisons first, age 15. And he spent many, many years in prison, first of many visits. Uh, World War I, when it came, he was eventually posted to France. And in France, uh, he, he was on the front lines and he was severely injured and had to be taken back to Sydney. Uh, he, he was blinded pretty much in one eye, and he was suffering the effects of gas poisoning. And when he got back to Sydney, the downward spiral just continued. He continued drinking more and more until he found himself addicted to methylated spirits on the streets of Sydney begging. One day, after spending years begging, he went to a soup kitchen that was been run by a group of Christians in the city at St. Barnabas's church. And that day, before they ate their food at the soup kitchen, a believer stood up and shared about faith in God and about how the God of the universe was interested in your life. That was a moment of an awakening for Arthur Stace. He realized that God was true. And in that moment, he prayed a very simple but profound prayer and he committed his entire life and future into the hands of this God. On the surface, it looked very simple, didn't look very impressive. But everything changed. That was the day he stopped drinking. He got himself a job, and he started attending a, a reg, regular basis every Sunday a Baptist church in Darlinghurst, Sydney. One Sunday at church, there was a preacher, and he heard this preacher preach a message about heaven and hell and eternity. He was so deeply impacted. There was one line in, in the statement of, that the preacher made that, that stuck with Arthur Stace, and it was the line when he said, I wish I could go into the streets of Sydney and shout to everyone in the city, there is an eternity, eternity. Arthur Stace, as he left the church that day, this phrase, eternity, eternity, was running through his minds. And he, he felt prompted to do something which he kept doing for the next 25 years of his life. Every morning for 25 years, he got up way before any of the city had wakened, and he would go onto the streets that he had previously lived on, and with a piece of chalk and a very distinctive piece of handwriting, he would write the word eternity on the pavement. So people woke up on the way to work, going about their regular, everyday, mundane existence, and there was this word eternity. It started appearing all over Sydney. Every day it appeared. It carried such a stir. In fact, it got a lot of media attention. And for 25 years, it was a mystery who was writing this word, and it's estimated that over those 25 years, Arthur Stace wrote the word eternity 500,000 times on the streets of Sydney, until eventually he was discovered. 
years later, in 1956, he was discovered. And then shortly after that, in 1967, the 30th of July, Arthur Stace, age 83, entered into eternity. But his one-word sermon continues. In fact, if you remember the millennium celebrations all around the world, if you watch the television at the millennium, you saw the fireworks celebration. I don't know if you can remember the Sydney ones. For 30 minutes, they had this incredible extravaganza with fireworks. And, and at the end of it, it culminated on the Sydney Harbour Bridge. This huge word appeared, 50-foot high letters, in this handwriting of Arthur Stace, the words, eternity. His one-word sermon now impacted the world. Arthur Stace was so provoked by the reality of God, by the, the reality of eternity, that he wanted to somehow shake people out of their mundaneness, out of just the everyday rhythms of just existing and kind of kicking your head down and grafting and not thinking about the big questions. He wanted to provoke people to think, to ask the big questions, to look at the really important things in life, to understand eternity. The psalm we're going to dig into at the start of this series is the psalm that does exactly the same thing. It's there to provoke us, there to stir in us thoughts of eternity, there to make us look at the things that we don't like looking at in our culture. We don't like looking at eternal. We don't like looking at the existence of God and things that make us uncomfortable in our existence. We just want to live a comfortable existence, and yet we're provoked by this psalm to get out of our comfort zones and look at some eternal issues, and that's where we're going. And this psalm's got three sections, and we're going to Section 1, 2, 3. Section 1 is about the everlasting God. Let's start reading. Psalm 90, verse 1. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the world, the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Moses is writing this psalm as it's written there. It's the only psalm written by Moses, and it's probably the oldest psalm ever written in the Bible. Moses has had an interesting journey. He's probably writing this at the end of his life, and he's lived a long life, 120 years old, the Bible records that he lived till. His life was broken up into three sections, 40 years, 40 years, 40 years. He spent the first 40 years. He grew up in a slave family. He was adopted into Pharaoh's family, so he lived as a, first as a slave and then as an adoptee for the first 40 years of his life. And then because he, he, he was so against how the Egyptians were oppressing his people, the Israelites, he ended up committing manslaughter and then he ended up a, a, a fugitive from the run for his life for the next 40 years of his life in a wilderness. And it was there God met him and commissioned him to go back and rescue God's people from slavery in Egypt. You, you, many of you know these accounts. Uh, you've seen him either on Disney or maybe you've read your Bibles. Uh, but it's all there. And he goes back and he spends the next 40 years leading a rebellious bunch of people, quite frankly, through a wilderness for the next 40 years. To be honest, he really hasn't had any fixed abodes. He's kind of been a, a slave in a foreign land. He's been adopted into another home. He's been a fugitive. And then he spent 40 years wildering in a desert with a bunch of grumblers. And yet, in the middle of that, Moses says, you have been our dwelling place. For Moses, God was his home. He was incredibly at home with God. That was his place of security. That was where he was comfortable. Where's your dwelling place? 
Where's your home, spiritually speaking? I, I, are, you, I, are you actually more at home with the things of this world and with sin and stuff, or are you at home with God? If you're at home with God, He's eternal, so your home is going to last. It's, I think right through the psalm, if you understand who Moses is, the psalm makes a lot of sense, because right through the psalm, there are a lot of allusions back to the book of Genesis. It's incredible. I, I won't have time to unpack all of them, but let me just draw your attention to just a few of the key ones. So we're going right to Genesis. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Sounds like the beginning of the psalm. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, it's interesting, who wrote Genesis? Moses. Moses, the same author who wrote the Psalm 90, Psalm 90 is the same author who wrote the book of Genesis. Question, what were his credentials to write Genesis? Because I'm guessing he probably wasn't there when it all happens, right? I mean, who, who, what human being could actually write Genesis about the origins of the universe? Who could have the credentials to do that? Well, I personally believe there is not one person on earth more qualified at that point than Moses to be able to write about the origins of the universe. Bear in mind, Moses was the guy who spent 80 days on a mountaintop, Mount Sinai, receiving the handwritten Ten Commandments from God. I mean, this guy had face-to-face encounters with the Creator. It is undoubted that God would have spoken to him and revealed to him what he wrote down in Genesis, just as God spoke to John the Apostle about what will happen at the end, and he wrote down in the book of Revelation. So God revealed it to Moses. It says about Moses in Exodus 33.10, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. So this guy truly had the credentials to be able to write such a piece as the book of Genesis. So verse 2 says, before the mountains were born, you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting. Question, where did this concept of God being this everlasting God come from? How, did, how was Moses first impacted by this truth? And here's where I think it first came to him. I think it came in the first significant encounter that Moses had with God recorded for us in the book of Exodus. Exodus 3, Moses has now been a period of 40 years as a fugitive, hiding in the backside of the desert, living in a tent, and then all of a sudden there's a phenomenon one day, and there's this burning bush. And God speaks from the bush and he goes and he has this encounter with God. And this is the dialogue that goes on between Moses and God, Exodus 3.13. And, and Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. They will ask me, what's his name? I mean, that wouldn't have been the first thing that would have come to my mind. But anyway, what's his name? Uh, sorry. I thought it was funny, but you guys obviously didn't. Then what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you should tell the Israelites. Tell them, I am has sent me to you. God, that didn't really help much. <laughs> You're just like, God, what's your name? I am. John? What? He just said, I am. He's pretty secure in himself, isn't he? <laughs> he's so cool. He's just so, it's like, wow. He's so secure, isn't he? To, he just is. And that's the whole point. It was an incredible name. It was the, this great name of God, I am. God just is. God is disclosing his 
self-existence. He isn't dependent on anything or anyone to exist. He just is, always has been. Nothing sustains God, so therefore God sustains everything. He always has been. He always will be. He just is. He's eternal. He stands outside of time. He is the ultimate fact of the universe. God is. I am. It's like C.S. Lewis describes it like drawing a line. Imagine you drew a line in front of you. It's like God draws this line, and there in front of him is time as we know it. You know, there was a beginning, and there will be an end, and somewhere on it, somewhere on it we are. Okay? That, and God, he stands outside of time, and he sees the whole deal. It's incredible. Let, let me read you some fantastic quotes. If you want a really good book to read during this study on the Psalms, read A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy. And here's some great quotes about God's eternality that A.W. Tozer makes. He says, because God lives in an everlasting now, he has no past or no future. He has already lived all our tomorrows as he has already lived all our yesterdays. For him, everything that will happen has already happened. That God appears at time's beginning is not too difficult to comprehend, but that He appears at the beginning and at the end of time simultaneously is not so easy for us to grasp. You see, that's why God can write with great detail and authority the book of Revelation. He writes it as a statement of fact that will occur in history, but it's in our future. But for God, it's a fact. It says in Isaiah 46, verse 9, I am God. There is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the ends from the beginning, from ancient times, and is still to come. I say my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. God's just incredible. And that does not mean we're puppets. No, no, no. We've been created in the image of a God who's free, and we've been created free with free will. But nevertheless, this stands true. God who stands outside of time. Incredible. And this is what Moses had grasped when he had that first significant encounter with God. So he says, before the mountains were born, verse 2, before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting you are God. Here's two facts that we understand from this psalm and throughout the Bible about us and about God. Fact number one, we know there's a God. We know there's a God. You may call yourself an atheist, but I believe you know there's a God. The Bible says in Romans very clearly that that which is known about God, is we know there's a God, and even though we knew God, we chose not to worship Him. Now, it might be you've, in all sincerity, persuaded your mind that you don't believe there's a God, but in the depths of your being, in, in your knower, you know there's a God. I came across this really good article um, last week from The Telegraph, an article written by their religious affairs correspondent, this guy called Martin Beckford, and he said this, according to Dr. Justin Barrett, a senior researcher at University of Oxford, Children are born believers in God, and they do not simply acquire religious belief through indoctrination. 
He claims that young people have a predisposition to believe in a supreme being because they assume that everything in the world was created with a purpose. He goes on to say that, that young children have a faith even when they've not been taught about it by family or at school. And I quote, he says, if you threw a handful on our islands and they raised themselves, I think they would believe in God, he says. Dr. Barrett also in his research claimed that anthropologists have found that in some cultures, children believe in God even when religious teaching are withheld from them. Now, I've seen this. I've seen this firsthand. I remember when my kids were younger, you know, taken to the school gate, and you, you became good friends with the other parents who were also dropping their kids at the school gate. I remember on two independent occasions, not unrelated to each other, I had two different times when parents came to me and they said, You're a, you lead a church, right? And I said, yes, I do. I do. And I said, can you help me? Uh, my kid's asking all these questions about God, right? One of those parents was clearly atheist. And I, I know the couple, lovely couple, but they're atheists. And they're really passionate atheists. They're not just on the fence. They're really passionate about their atheism. But their daughter was asking big questions about God. Oh, that must have frustrated them. <laughs> uh, and there was another, another family, and the mum came, and, and she, she was just unreligious. She wasn't atheist. She wasn't against it for it. She just was unreligious. But she came to me and said, listen, my daughter's asking me so many questions about God. Do you have a Bible that I could show her and read stuff to her? So I brought her a Bible. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible that here we have a situation where as human beings, I believe we have a knowing about God. And we try to suppress that, and the world tries to suppress that. And could it be even Satan tries to suppress that? And yet this knowing about God is there. Fact number one, there is a God. And fact number two, we know there is an eternity. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He, God, has also set eternity in their hearts. God has put within each and every one of you and a sense of the eternal. And every time you hear some atheists saying that you just die and that's it, it's numb. You feel numb to it. It's dead. The words are dead words. They're not alive words. They don't reek of truth. They don't reek of credibility. You know there is more than just this. You know if you've been with someone who has died, they weren't just matter. They're no longer there. Even though they look like they're there, they're no longer there. We have this thing called eternity in our hearts. And The Bible makes that clear. Helen Keller, who was born blind and deaf, she said this, I believe in the immortality of the soul because I have within me immortal longings. And I think she's just saying what every other human being could say, that there is a sense in every human being that, man, there's a God. There is an eternity. We've been created in His image, I believe. And because of that, and ever since then, This creator, God, the eternal God who stands outside of time has been whispering to our souls, I am here. Come to me and live forever. Section number one, Moses focuses our attention on God, the eternal. And then section number two, he turns the attention to mortal man. And this is challenging. I mean, these words are pretty harsh. Verse three, you turn people back to dust saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like new grass in the morning. In the morning it springs up, and by evening it is dry and withered. Now, that's not Scotland. That's talking about wilderness, okay? 
Scotland, everything's green. We really love that, and it's, and it's all due to the rain, right? But in the wilderness that Moses was living in, you, you get grass, after a flurry of rain, you get grass sprouting and then just withering in a day. And he said, that's what our lives are like. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 or 80 years if our strength endures, and yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow. They quickly pass away, and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is due, your due. So you've got this huge contrast right here in the psalm. We've been introduced to the eternal God, one with no beginning, no end, the one just, who just is, the one who's the sustainer of life. And now we're introduced to human beings. And it's a brutal picture. And we don't like it. It's uncomfortable, right? That's why we don't look at these things often. Our life just is like this. It, it, it appears and it just disappears. It, it, you know, it, it, what does it sum up to, really? It, and we're just like a blink of the eye. Uh, we're like a blade of grass. You know, if we were to describe ourselves, we'd say, yeah, we're like, we're like a mighty building or we're like a great oak tree. And that's how we describe it. But God says, no, no, you're like a blade of grass. You know, I think, come on, that's not blade of grass. You don't exactly like you walk past the lawn and say, oh, notice that one there. You know, you know, <laughs> and we just don't really stand out that much. It's talking about the significance of God and then in contrast, the total insignificance of human beings. <clears throat> and that's tough language. Bear in mind again who's writing this. Moses writing at the end of most probably it's written probably at the end of the 40-year time that he and his, these one and a half million people have been living in the wilderness. And he's been there for 40 years, wandering this wilderness. Why were they there 40 years? It, didn't, it wouldn't take that long to walk from slavery in Egypt into the promised land, the land of Canaan. It wouldn't have taken that long. Why 40 years? Well, if you read your Bibles, you'd discover that it was 40 years because God judged them. Because they just kept complaining and complaining and complaining. And there came a point where they, just, they, just, they lived like God wasn't there, even though they'd seen God do great miracles. And God said, enough's enough. This generation will not enter the promised land. Your children will. So everyone from 20 years old upwards died in the wilderness. Incredible, even Moses himself. So this was the situation. They were under God's judgment. They were under God's act of wrath. And Moses was very familiar with death. 1.2 million people, an estimated 1.2 million people he was leading. In 40 years, they died. That means every year, 30,000 people died. That means every day they were burying 82 people approximately in the wilderness. It's a lot of funerals. He was so familiar with death. And again, most probably he's writing at the end of these 40 years in the wilderness. So he's probably at the end of his life. He's at the end of his time, and he knows he's not going to the promised land. He knows his time is coming, and he's now reflecting on the eternalness of God and then the short-livedness of human beings. And again, it's an allusion back to the book of Genesis. It links. Genesis, uh, when it says, you turn, verse 3 says, you turn back pe- people back to dust, say to them, return to dust, you mortals. This relates completely with Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is the fall of man. And when human beings decided at some point in history to turn their back on God, we fell and we were cursed. And ever since then, this world has fallen into disrepair. 
And the Bible says, in that moment, God says, you know, you will die, you will return to dust. That's what it teaches in the book of Genesis chapter 3 that, again, Moses had revealed to him. So again, there's a clear allusion back to this, that ever since then, human beings have been dying because of sin. And everyone's a sinner. Everyone's a sinner. This is the issue in humanity. There was an article posted in a paper with the big question saying, what's wrong with the world? And people posted their answers by letter to respond to this article. The Catholic thinker and theologian G.K. Chesterton wrote in response, Dear sirs, I am, yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. And you and I could write exactly the same. What's wrong with the world? I am. Because every single human being from the point of birth has inherited sin. And every single one of us will return to dust. Thanks for coming to church today. Hope you've had a really good time. Enjoy your week. Okay, now we'll keep going because it gets better. Uh, Romans 6 verse 23. Okay, it gets better in a few minutes, not just now. Romans 6 23 says, the wages of sin is death. In other words, if we sin, we die. And that is the condition of human beings. Did you know that we were created not to die? But when sin came into humanity and then the generations ever since, death is the norm. It is our default because sin is our default. Not just physical death, but that separation we experience between us and God and this life continues on into eternity unless an answer has radically intervened in our lives. And then he goes on in verses 5 to 9. Moses says, yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass in the morning. In the morning it springs up new. By the evening it dry and withers. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You've set our iniquities before you, your secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. So when it says that you sweep away in the sleep of death, it, the Hebrew literally translates, uh, carry them away as with a flood. Again, I think it's an allusion back to Genesis. You remember Genesis 6 and 7 where there's the flood, where we see the human beings, we've fallen. God has created incredibly. We've turned our backs on our creator. It results in death. But there's a moment where God brings a judgment on the whole earth because of sin and the wickedness that was prevalent on the earth. So this section of what Moses is saying, he's talking about we're sinners. We're under God's wrath. And that's not good news. And that's not PC. And people don't talk about that in Edinburgh. You know, we're the best. We're the tops. We can believe in ourselves. That's what we're told. But the Bible doesn't say that. Bible says it's like blades of grass. Bible said we're under God's wrath, and it's it's bad news. Until fifteen hundred years after Moses pens Psalm ninety, a young Jewish man was in debate with the Pharisees, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, and this is how the debate went. In John eight fifty six, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day said this young Jewish man. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him. And are you, have you seen Abraham? Very truly, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Doesn't make sense, does it? I was maybe. But Jesus said, I am. But they knew what he meant. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds.
This is one of the big moments in the life of Jesus Christ where he directly claims to be none other than God. I am the self-existent one, the creator, the one who always has been, the one who always will be. God, the eternal, immortal God, had taken on human flesh. He looked like mortal man. Incredible. Why did he do this? Because of the problems that Moses has just been describing. Because of the fact that every human being is under a curse. Because of the fact that every human being is in sin. Because of the fact that we're condemned ultimately to return to the dust. God, in the anguish of his heart and the depth of his passionate love, even though he's a God of anger because he's just, even still, the immensity of his love motivated God to provide the most radical answer anyone could have come up with. He himself would deal with the problem on our behalf. So God took on flesh, entered into human history. Isaiah predicted it. Isaiah 9, 6. To us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God's Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, Isaiah predicted it. One would be born, a child would be born who would be none other than the eternal God in the flesh. Incredible. The God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, yet in three persons, the Son entered into human existence. And an, an incredible moment in order to rescue us. This true story of two brothers <clears throat> playing on the banks of the Mississippi River, which was a dangerous place to play. Because the Mississippi River, river which is full of silt and sediment, they, there's lots of ships go up and down the river, so they, they have to keep it dredged in order to keep the ship lanes clear. So the dredgers go up and down and they, and they clear out the silt and the sediment and they dump the silt and the sediment on the banks of the Mississippi River. And when this wet mud and silt and sediment is dumped on the banks, it creates deep caverns and uh, they become watery and it like, becomes like quicksands. And these two lads have been playing there. That, that day they didn't return home. Uh, and the parents of the brothers were very concerned. And a search party went out and they searched the playground and they searched the, the, the forest. And then eventually they decided that we have to search the riverbanks. And there, in the muds, uh, completely covered apart from by his head, was the youngest of the sons of the brothers. His head was just, could be seen just above the sands. And he'd passed out. And so they rescued him, they pulled him out of the mud, and they, he. He recuperated and he came rounds and they said, where's your brother? And I said, I was standing on his shoulders. He had dived into the mud. He tried to rescue me and he pushed me above the mud and I was standing on his shoulders. And the truth about Jesus Christ is this. That Jesus Christ jumped into the sands of time in order to put us on his shoulders to rescue us from what surely would have taken us out, Satan, sin, and death that the eternal, immortal, eternal, glorious, ever-existent, incredible creator God took on human flesh. And on a cross, he took the punishment we deserve for our sins. He raised you up by putting himself down. He laid his life down so you could have eternal life. And he resurrected on the third day because death can't hold God. Because he's the sinless one. Death had no authority over him. He resurrected on the third day and today you have an opportunity, if you put your faith in Him, to become a new person. If you're away from God today, you are lost eternally. You have no hope 
outside of God. But today, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, and I know it's kind of narrowing it right down here, but if you're sick and you had a disease, I wouldn't want to tell you, it could be this medicine, this medicine. No, no, I want to tell you what one's going to work. God's provided an answer. I didn't come up with this. Jesus Christ is the only human being who's ever died on your behalf and therefore the only one who can remedy your predicament. Put your faith in him today. Run to him today. In a few moments, we're going to see people getting baptized. They're getting baptized because they've put their faith in Jesus, the one you can't see, and yet who's more real than everything you can see because he created it all. The one who's eternal and everlasting, they've built their lives and put their faith in him, and they've been changed forever, and you can be changed forever by putting your faith in him. Go for it today. I mean, why on earth would you not want to? Why would you want to live another day on earth without living it for God? And then it comes to the last section in this psalm, this incredible psalm about God. Section three is a prayer, and Moses is now praying to this eternal God. And he says in verse 12, good advice, he says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Moses prays this prayer and he says, you want a heart of wisdom? He says, number your days. He's saying, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And that's how you get a heart of wisdom. Imagine every single day of your life, every day you were given 86,400 pounds, no more, no less, every day. Imagine that. Ooh. All right? How would you live? In fact, how would you live differently to how you live now? Bear in mind, you have one day to spend that money in. You can't save any of it for the next day. You've got one day to spend it. How would you spend that incredible resource? And every single new day into the bank account came another 86,400 pounds. And every day it was there. I mean, how would you live differently? Did you know that every day God gives you 86,400 seconds to live. You can't get them back. You spend them once, and you have to spend them in one day. You can't save them for the next day. You get one shot at it. And every single second is worth more than any pounds anyone could give you. And it's a resource. God has given you life in your breath and lungs and strength, and He's given you opportunity. And he's calling us to live a life where every day we make the most of our time before this God. Live the life God has planned for you. See, if you live the life God's got for you and you realize that time is short, then you're not going to be timid in living life. You're going you're gonna to take hold of it. You're going to take confident steps. You're not going to be adverse to all the risks. You're not going to live it, play it safe. You're going to say, I'm, I've got short life. I want to make the most of my time. It's like the, the fly in Bugs Life. The fly said, I've only got 24 hours to live and I ain't going to waste it in here. He realized, I've got, I've got a short time to live. I'm going to make the most of my time. 
love what Jim Elliott, the missionary to the Ecuadorian uh, natives in Ecuador, he said this, wherever you are, be all there. Live to the hilts every situation you believe to be the will of God. Live to the hill every situation that you believe to be the will of God. Maximize your moments. Live your life before God. And then Moses in this prayer gives us another real good gleaning for life. He says in verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. You want joy and gladness all your days? Me too. You want to know how you get joy and gladness all your days? The answer is you're not going to find it in this earth ultimately. Not that you don't enjoy stuff in this earth. It's pretty cool. It's great cool stuff going on, but you want ultimate joy and gladness all your days, you will not find it on this earth. According to this verse, according to truth, you're going to find it by being satisfied by God's unfailing love. When that penny drops in your soul, you're going to have joy and gladness all your days because you are one loved person and God's love is incredible towards you. You see, the thing is, His love, you think about it, if He's eternal, unchanging, incredible, and we're fickle and changeable and up and down, we're all over the place, and yet this eternal God loves us in an unchanging way. That's like any other love you and I have experienced. I mean, the love that we give to each other so often does this, but God's love is eternal, and it causes you to change. I remember my sister, when she was at university, uh, a little cat walked in off the street and started living at her house. Okay? So she just adopted this cat. The cat, and it was a little scruffy thing, and it looked like it was about to die. It was an old, scruffy little cat. And it really did. My, my sister thought it was an elderly cat, and she had pity on it, and she kind of just moved into her house. So she just took it on. And she figured, well, if you're going to live here, I may as well start looking after you. So she filled a bath. <laughs> she got this cat, and cats love this. And she, and she shampooed this cat in the bath. And this, this cat came out of the bath, and she hair-dried it, and went, bing, <laughs> like, all fluffed up. And actually, after cleaning it, this cat was the most beautiful, young, Persian cat. It had all this fluffy hair. Couldn't see it because it was all matted and stuff. But this beautiful, incredible cat. And this cat just became this... We eventually inherited the cat when my sister moved to London. I reckon it could have won cat shows. It was just such a beautiful cat. And what happened was love made it flourish. Love just made it change before your very eyes. And that's what love does to you. When you allow this eternal God, and I know the Bible talks about wrath, and I'm not ignoring that, but I'm just saying that that's how serious your sin is. But you know how seriously God takes you? The scale of His love? Massive! Man, He loves you more than you could ever comprehend. And when you let Him love you, when you receive that love, it transforms your life like nothing else will, and it'll give you joy and gladness all your days. And the thing about this God, He loves you not just now, he loves every version of you. I remember I was 15 when I put my faith in Jesus. I suddenly understood his love. But do you know the version of me that was three? I didn't understand much then. The same love he had for me when I was 15, he loved me with then because he stands outside of time. And when I'm 80, God willing, the same love he'll have for me then is exactly the same love he has for me now. Because God who stands outside of time loves this human being called Peter Anderson and paid the ultimate price for this human being, all my sins, past, present, future sins. 
And eternal love has come towards me and towards you. And it's not just the you now, it's the every version of you, the you when you were three and the you when you're 70. Every version of you, God has loved and God has paid the price to ransom. He's a really good God. And then the final bit of advice we see here in verse 17 is, may the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is a man crying out in the face of an eternal God saying, God, would you let it be that my life could somehow or another make a difference? I I know I'm just like a blade of grass. I know my life's just like nothing. But God, you see why I'm here? Eternal gods, would you somehow make it be that my life can make an impact on this earth that will last for eternity? And with God, that's possible. That's possible. What I love about this psalm is it's not really focused on the significance of human beings. In fact, it's pretty negative towards us. It's actually focused on the significance of God. And actually, if you let that be the theme of your life, don't take yourself too seriously. But take God hugely seriously. I mean, let Him be significant in your soul. Then I assure you, you will live a significant life. I love what it says in 1 John 2, 17. The world's and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. You want to live an eternally significant life? Then live for God. Don't live for self. That's miserable. Live for God. Let His love embrace you. Let it change you. This morning, Arthur stands. Arthur's stage was so impacted by this eternal God. He dedicated the rest of his life to glorifying this eternal God. And the impact he's made, God has established the work of Arthur Stace's hands, and he wants to establish the work of your hands. Let's pray. Lord, you're just incredible. You're amazing. You're the one who has chosen to reveal yourself to us. God, these, I believe, are the words of God we've been reading and studying, and we're just amazed that you would speak such things to us, God. Thank you for the challenge, to be honest, God. Thanks for loving us so much that you're willing to challenge us and shake us out of our comfort zone. And God, we want, to, we want our lives to count eternally. We want our lives to have eternal significance. We want our lives to be impacted by the love of God and that we would have joy and gladness all our days. And we want to be those who number our days and make every moment count for the glory and honor of God. Thanks so much, God, for your, your goodness and your love. And thank you, eternal God, for taking on human flesh and letting us stand on your shoulders and be rescued from the sin and the mire that we found ourselves in. Okay, just in your hearts, just praise Him. Just take a moment to respond to the eternal God. Just praise Him. He's here right now. God, I pray that you'd come by your Holy Spirit and as we worship you, be glorified in our midst. I pray as we worship you, let sicknesses be healed. As we worship you, let circumstances change. Do what only you can do, God, the eternal God. Have your way right now in this room. Okay, today, if you're not connected with God, 
then I'm just going to give you an opportunity right now to make that connection. Don't do this if you're half-hearted. But if you're really wanting God in your life and you're willing to put your faith in Jesus who died on the cross for you and rose again, you're willing to let him become significant in your life and you're allowed to you're going to live your life for him, then I want to help introduce you to him today. And very simply, I'm going to pray a prayer. And I invite you to pray this prayer after me, just one line at a time, under your breath. Let it be your prayer to God. Pray, dear Lord God, the eternal God, thank you that you love me. And thank you that because you love me, you are willing to enter into this world and to die in my place. Jesus, thank you for dying so I could be forgiven for all my sin. Thank you for rising again. Thank you, you're alive right now. Today I ask that you'd come into my life. You'd save me, change me. I want you to be significant in my life from now on. I give you first place in my life. Jesus be Lord in my life. Thank you. Thanks for hearing my prayer and accepting me today. Okay, if you just prayed that prayer, God heard you. I'd like to pray for you just wherever you are. If you prayed that prayer, just very simply raise your hand up nice and high so I can see it. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Just raise up nice and clear so I can see it. Thank you. Thank you. Is anyone else? These are such a good decision. Wow. Anyone else? You just said yes to God. You just put your faith in Him. Is there anyone else like that? Okay, God, I thank you for these people, these four precious people who today, they've just made a really big decision and they've prayed a really simple yet profound prayer. Thank you, God, that everything changes when we connect with you. And I pray, God, you'd make yourself right now very real to each of these people. Let them know your presence. Let them know your love so that they can be glad all their days. And let them live a life that is committed to doing the will of God. Let this be the beginning of a whole new journey of following Jesus. Amen. Amen.